Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, an enticing collection of reporting and analysis from this week. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on our menu, indie films struggle in the digital era. Sleeper trains could soon reach the end of the line, and why defensive cows protect endangered jaguars. But first, a dirty secret was our cover line this week. Solar cells and wind turbines generate only 7% of the world's electricity, but that figure is rising. Yet, as things stand, clean energy success is slowing its progress, as our cover leader explained. BP, an oil firm, expects renewables to account for half of the growth in global energy supply over the next 20 years. It is no longer far-fetched to think that the world is entering an era of clean, unlimited and cheap power. But let's put that organic champagne on ice for a moment, as there's a snag. Green energy has a dirty secret. The more it is deployed the more it lowers the price of power from any source. This makes it hard to manage the transition to a carbon-free future. During which many generating technologies, clean and dirty, need to remain profitable if the lights are to stay on. Policymakers around the world are already using this logic to slow the advances of renewable energy. In parts of Europe and China, investment in renewables is slowing as subsidies are cut back. However, the solution is not less wind and solar. It is to rethink how the world prices clean energy in order to make better use of it. To read more about re-energising those markets, pick up a copy of this week's issue. And to hear our energy editor's analysis, have a listen to our Money Talks podcast too. Our international section, meanwhile, reported on another of the world's most precious resources. Diamonds are forever, as the saying goes, but sooner or later production might peak. Will industry fortunes fade? Gacho Quay is too far north for trees. In the few snowless months, its surroundings in Canada's northwest territories resemble a sprawling archipelago. There are no roads, no pipes, No electricity cables. But something glistens in this strange barren tundra. De Beers, the world's biggest diamond company, marked the opening of its Gacho Quay mine in September. Local indigenous leaders prayed for the mine, beating drums. Bruce Cleaver, the firm's chief executive, and Mark Kutifani, the boss of its parent company, Anglo-American, stood by a ceremonial fire, flames tilting in the wind. Gacho Quay is an astonishing endeavour, the biggest new mine in the world in over a decade. De Beers has no plans for another. It marks a sharp shift in a rather clear-cut industry. The diamond business gained its sparkle around 1866, when a farmer's son picked up a glistening pebble on the bank of the Orange River in South Africa. For most of the next 150 years, De Beers would dominate the global market. But times have changed and the company is letting control of the market slip. It faces many uncertainties, from synthetic diamonds to changing relationships with polishers and cutters. Meanwhile, 
The source of the demand that drives sales, the link between diamonds and love, looks weaker than it used to. So will the company survive changing tastes? You can read the whole article in this week's issue. Over in our Americas section, we saw a more unconventional approach to protecting precious resources. As an article explained, Colombian farmers are breeding more defensive cows, which could end up keeping endangered jaguars alive. From time to time, jaguars emerge from a clump of forest, streak across the savanna and attack one of a panic-stricken herd of cows. When that happens, ranchers hunt the offender down and shoot it. That practice is endangering the cat's survival. Unfortunately, the current bulls are a little too easily, well, cowed. The cows that graze in Los Llanos are mostly zebu, which are popular with ranchers for their fast growth, large size and white hides. But they have an unfortunate habit of fleeing in all directions when danger approaches. An understandable act when faced with a hungry jaguar. But cat numbers are dwindling, and the counterintuitive answer developed by Panthera, a conservation charity, is to breed more defensively. Esteban Payan, who directs Panthera's operations in northern South America, chose San Martineros, a little-known species of criollo cattle descended from Spanish fighting bulls. Few jaguars dare to challenge a massed group of 500 kilograms, that's 1,100 pounds of San Martineros, their horns levelled. As Colombian farmers go about beefing up their cows, over in Brazil, the government is finally taking steps to tackle one of its biggest financial problems, pensions. Despite having a relatively youthful population, it spends almost as much on pensions as Greece, which has a far more time-weathered demographic. On our Money Talks podcast, our Sao Paulo bureau chief, Jan Piotrowski, explained the size of the hole in Brazil's pension pot. The public system for private sector workers notched up a deficit of a whopping 150 billion reais, so sort of on to the tune of, of about $50 billion. The public sector pensions added another $150 billion. So we're talking of about $300 billion reais just last year. From those huge sums Brazil is sinking into the elderly, we move now to our science and technology show, Babbage, where we explored the dirty depths of the world's oceans. The deepest parts of the sea have always been thought of as relatively clean places, but this, it seems, is not necessarily the case. Science correspondent Matt Kaplan gave us a flavour of what the pollution levels are in the deep. In the Mariana Trench, they were finding levels that were at 1,900 nanograms per gram of tissue collected from these animals. That's like 50 times the amount that you would find in the most polluted environments on the surface of the Earth. Our business section, meanwhile, reported on one section of the film industry diluting its own success. Indie films, those made by independent production companies, seem to be undergoing something of a renaissance. But as our article explained, with so much competition, it's hard for most to break through. Manchester by the Sea, a contender for six Oscars, including Best Picture, was a darling of the Sundance Film Festival last year. Kenneth Lonergan's masterpiece about family and loss has earned $46 million in cinemas in America and Canada, a spectacular return on its production costs of $8.5 million. 
But this film was more outlier than ordinary, and it seems that for indie films, technology is a double-edged sword. The digital age has made it easier than ever to make a film, but also harder than ever to break through the clutter of entertainment options to an audience. Some indie producers are taking the philosophical line. Chris Moore, a producer of Manchester by the Sea, compares the output of indie films now to trees falling in the forest. Not seen, but does it make a sound? Anyway, the problem is far more concrete. One problem is that fewer people are going to cinemas. Another problem is that the DVD market has crashed. Sales and rentals of films in all physical formats in America plummeted from $25 billion in 2005 to $12 billion last year. If the decline of DVDs pulls on your nostalgic heartstrings, our final taste of this week's issue might stop you in your tracks. A piece in our Books and Arts section reviewed a new work praising the slow-travelling, fast-disappearing overnight sleeper train. Sleeper trains occupy a romantic corner of any traveller's soul. One of Hercule Poirot's most gripping adventures takes place on the Simplon Orient Express, which used to run from Paris to Istanbul. Hmm, from Agatha Christie to James Bond, that could turn out to be an overly eventful route. In some parts of the world, though, the romance endures. The Caledonian sleeper, complete with smartly dressed waiters, neeps and tatties and a selection of whiskies, is the best way to travel between London and Scotland. Elsewhere, however, sleepers are on their last legs. Sensing that the end is nigh, Andrew Martin, a British novelist, has written an ode to the sleeper. A man clearly enthralled by the mystique of the trains and early breakfast. The reader joins him on a train to Munich, where he eats a tuna sandwich on board. Travelling from Paris to Venice, he thinks he has been robbed of 100 euros, that's $105. The service to Nice is cancelled. Yet such is his love for sleeping aboard that he spends the night on the train as it sits on the platform. These dispiriting stories suggest the end may be in sight for the sleeper train. How different things were in the 19th century, when a passenger on the Orient Express could dine on gigot de mouton à la breton, épinards au sucre and champagne aplenty. Now that sounds more like my kind of train. A final word of advice from our reviewer. Catch the sleeper train before it's too late. But unfortunately, it's the end of the line for this week's tasting menu. Don't forget you can read all of the articles mentioned in this week's issue and find our other podcasts online. Do keep sending in your feedback by email to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>